and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the transparently young, transgressively hip, and transcendentally lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hi, guys. And Zach Davis. Hello, world. How you guys doing? Pretty good. Pretty great. Yeah. Um, I'm enjoying a nice, cool beverage. I was going to ask you, what's on tap, Zach? So today we are drinking uh, limoncello. Thank you, Jason's mom, for <laughs> the For these limoncello. wonderful drinks. They're quite good. All right. Who's our guest this week? <laughs> <laughs> so this week we're talking with Nick Rapatrizone, who is a writer that covers everything from books to film to sports, and he really finds God and Catholicism in all things, which is pretty great. In his latest article for America, titled In Netflix's The Keepers, A Nun's Unsolved Murder Tears Apart a Catholic Community, he covers the recently Emmy-nominated series directed by Ryan White. So we decided to bring him on and talk about the series and the responses from both Catholic and secular audiences. And after that, we've got our Consolations and Desolations, where we tell you where we did or didn't find God this week. But, man, it is a bit of a downer of a conversation. <laughs> yeah. So yes. we're going to try to keep things <laughs> yeah. light beforehand. So fair warning. So you won't be caught as off guard as the three of us were when yeah, we no, went into this, the series. This show does not have a trigger warning. It does And I not. don't approve of trigger warnings. That was fine. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I normally binge watch everything on Netflix and I could not binge watch this. Yeah, like I needed breaks. It's hard to watch. Nope. But it's, I mean, hard to watch, but worth watching, I would say. So we're drinking the limoncello because we uh, tweeted at Nick and said, what should we drink this week when we're discussing this horrible thing? And he recommended limoncello because it cleanses the soul. So I would agree. Yep. It's been pretty cleansing so far. Indeed. Especially for our livers. <laughs> <laughs> but first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, um, if you were planning to... <coughs> First, if you plan on visiting Pope Francis's office, uh, don't whine. He has he has a sign on his door that says "No complaining." <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty great. Is pretty great. Uh, apparently, this motivational speaker met him at one of his general audiences and gave him this sign, and it's now posted on his door. It says, "Offenders are subject to a victim mentality." which decreases one's sense of humor and ability to solve problems. And if you're with children, the penalty for whining is doubled because you're setting a bad example for children. (laughs) So, and I quote, stop complaining and take steps to improve your life. Pope Francis in this scenario (laughs) is that corny middle school teacher who actually like really took the heart with the (laughs) auditory, with the uh, assembly speaker was talking about and put the sign on the door. Yeah, no, it's pretty great. So, okay, but... He, there's a caveat. He says, it's not okay to complain to the Pope because that's just annoying. He's right. got a lot to deal with. <laughs> but it's okay to complain to the Lord because that's technically just prayer. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. I'm glad that he val- validated my prayers because that's literally all I do lately is complain to God um, and hope that he still loves me. Yes. Yeah. He says, sometimes I hear confessions where people say, I complain to the Lord. But no, he is a father and this is a form of prayer. Complain to the Lord. This is good. <laughs> So, classic Pope Francis. <laughs> Olga, what's our next story? So, this one comes out of Texas. A Catholic priest down there is being hailed as one of the best brewers after winning the highest honor for best home brew beer in the United States. 
So he has a company with his brewing partner, Nick McCoy, who's a Catholic, who runs a Dallas-based printing company. And together, their brewing operation is called Draft Punk. Nice. Draft Punk. I didn't know they uh, brewed beer in Texas. Yeah, worth noting (laughs) that Texans, you should write in because our producer, Eloise, was like, don't you guys want to talk about how it's interesting it came from Texas? And we're like, like, what is that supposed to mean? (laughs) What is is shocking about Texas brewing beer? Anyone can brew beer. beer. That is the great thing about the beer renaissance is you can go to anywhere in the country and just uh, sample their selection of local beers. Okay. Ashley, what's our next story? So if you can picture Mother Teresa in your head right now. I'm picturing her. She's probably wearing a white habit, mm-hmm. which is actually a sari. And it's white and it has three blue stripes. That is now copyrighted. It is the intellectual property of the Missionaries of Charity, the order that Mother Teresa started. Um, and so after her canonization, their, their copyright was approved. So now if you want to use that image you're going to have to pay these nuns. And the Vatican is not happy about that. Was telling us to think of it and imagine her in our head a trick to make us pay taxes yeah, I, on this? You, you <laughs> now we ha- owe money? Yeah. Or at least, like, you should donate to the mission. Got it. So just to be clear, it's <laughs> is it? It's just the image of the sorry, not the image of Mother Teresa in the sorry. Well, right? actually, the, the name Mother Teresa is copyrighted as well. Also? Okay. Okay. So this sounds this sounds kind of bad. It sounds like these nice little nuns are trying to commercialize. Trying to take money <laughs> from people so they can give it to the dying. How no. dare they? Money hungry nuns. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so there have been instances in the past where schools have used the name like Mother Teresa School for blah, 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 without asking her permission and then when these teachers at the school were not paid, they went to the missionaries of charity and were like, hey, where's our salary? And we're like, we're not connected to you. Or there have been other misuses. Um, so it's a it's an attempt to protect Mother Teresa's legacy from people who are trying to capitalize on it. I don't think the primary goal is to just like sell Mother Teresa okay. t-shirts. So that makes that makes a little more sense. And then the Vatican is is not happy about this? Yes, which is interesting because the Holy See has a has copyright protections on Pope Francis and on like the uh, the Holy See symbol, the two keys crossing each other. So they have protection on protections on that, and they also say that they don't want other people to be like profiting off of the image of Pope Francis, and then to have people saying, "Oh, like look at the church using this popular pope to make money." Yeah, I remember being upset about that because of its potential impact on meme culture. Yes. Pope Francis. <laughs> um, you know, I did make a ton of money after I bought MotherTeresa.org shortly after the internet came out. <laughs> and that's really what's propping me up in my New York City lifestyle is the money I made selling that to the Missionaries of Charity. So I'm thankful for the copyright law. <laughs> what's next, Zach? So this week, there were some high-profile statements from cardinals about the relationship between the LGBT community and the Catholic Church. And this is a topic of concern to us at America Media and Jesuitical. You know, a few weeks back, we had Father James Martin on to talk about his new book about the building a bridge between the church and the LGBT community. So first, uh, Cardinal Marx, who is 
Colonel Reinhard Marx who of Munich, who is the head of the German Bishops' Conference, gave an interview where he was asked about Germany's recent passage of same-sex marriage. He said we need to be concerned about the fact that the church was not there for the LGBT community when uh, homosexuality was considered a crime until 1994, and the church was not standing up for their own civic rights. And that should be a source of shame for the church, rather than focusing on the doom and gloom, oh no, marriage is not between a man and a woman exclusively anymore. Um, so that was the first one. And then there was uh, more news stateside, right? Yeah. So Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago gave a talk on Tuesday night of this past week uh, in which he said that it's it's a good sign that uh, Catholics use the terms that the LGBT community uses to describe themselves, namely LGBT, instead of things like people who are experiencing same-sex attraction or suffering from same-sex attraction uh, because that is that is part of respecting uh, these fellow Catholics as is laid out in the catechism of the Catholic Church. And I thought this was, you know, a really positive sign to see, you know, both in Europe and in the United States, you know, working towards taking the flames out of the, the culture wars, you know, that might incite some more arguing within the church itself. But I think that's okay, personally. Yeah. I mean, and like Cardinal Marx, especially, like the fact that he made this point that I haven't heard made elsewhere that like, yes, the church can be opposed to same sex marriage as a legal matter. But as, as Christians, like we don't own what the state is doing. Like we can participate in that and we can try to influence that. But what we do own is how we treat LGBT people and LGBT Catholics, but just the community at large, like that, that's on us. Like it's, what the state decides to do is not, we're, we're not going to have to answer for that. We will have to answer for discrimination and unjust treatment of LGBT people. Right. And treating this community with respect begins with something as simple as calling them, you know, as you mentioned, calling them by the terms that they want to be heard by. Yeah. And the thing that really struck me, and this comes from, from this interview with Cardinal Marx, is that uh, it doesn't tend toward despair. I think a lot of times he, he, you know, he acknowledges that some Christians and Catholics are fearful or they, you know, worried that the, you know, the nuclear family is being drained from society and that's going to ruin Western and Eastern civilization at the same time. Uh, but he's really, you know, from a position of hope. Yet Europe has some Christian roots and influences and, you know, our duty is to, you know, water those seeds, you know, but those are reflected in the values embedded in the culture as much as they are in the laws. So some of the responses to this, to Father Jim's book in in particular, was that building a bridge is important, dialogue is important, but you can't leave behind the truth, church teaching. So the Archbishop of Philadelphia, Archbishop Chaput, he wrote a blog post in response to Jim in which he quotes uh, Paul's letter to the Romans that talks about relations between women and women and men and men. So his critique is that Jim invites this dialogue without laying down those basic facts of what church teaching or the Bible says. So those who are critical of this more like opening attitude towards the LGBT community point towards scripture and towards the catechism. But the catechism also says that same-sex desires are intrinsically disordered. So is it is it 
disingenuous to ha- try to open this dialogue without acknowledging that part of church teaching. Yeah, I think people like this are where, you know, concerned that people are going to start walking across a bridge and hit a roadblock they didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency in the church to just like always remind the LGBT community that they're not supposed to be having sex in a way that we don't remind other people about that. And Jim's response to the to that critique, I think, has been a great one, is that no one is surprised by that. It's not like no one knows what the Catholic Church's teaching is, right? You know, so to constantly bring it up and batter people over the head with it um, isn't helpful, and it's discriminatory to not to only use that towards that community and not uh, other communities who are also called to chastity in whatever their vocation is. Yeah, and I would say it just goes it goes back to what. Jim pointed out in his book that the catechism also says what we owe the LGBT community is respect, sensitivity, and compassion. And so that needs to be reflected in our language um, and the way we approach this dialogue. We're pleased to welcome Nick Repatrizone. In his latest for America, he wrote about the Emmy-nominated Netflix series, The Keepers. Welcome, Nick. Hi. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling what is the story behind The Keepers? Uh, the Keepers, it's an, a Netflix original series. It's uh, based on a series of events that occurred in the uh, late 1960s at Archbishop Keogh High School in Baltimore. Um, there's actually an unsolved murder case. A nun, Sister Kathy Sesnick, one of the most beloved teachers in the school, favorite of all the kids um, and a faculty, was found murdered um, in 1969. She had gone missing one night and didn't go home to her roommate, and they found her later. The series tracks the unsolved case, which is actually still an open case uh, in the Baltimore Police Department. And the fallout from it was the discovery of an abuse scandal that was centered on a priest, Father Joseph Maskell, who was a guidance counselor at that school, Archbishop Keogh. And in the series, uh, there are two women who were actually Sister Kathy's uh, former students, who are kind of like amateur detectives trying to find out information both about her disappearance and murder as well as its potential link to this abuse scandal that kind of has rocked uh, the Baltimore Archdiocese. It sounds a little bit like a, some of the true crime dramas that uh, have gotten really popular, whether that's serial or making a murderer. Uh, I asked two questions. One is, are you a fan typically of those of that genre of art? And two, what makes this one different or similar than those? What makes it different is that it's, I mean, obviously a a show about a Catholic high school and then a nun um, is inevitably going to be like a culturally Catholic show, but it really settles into sort of that post-Vatican II world of Baltimore, which is the first, I believe, was the first diocese um, in the United States. So it's a uniquely Catholic kind of place, and it's a place where Catholicism really dictates or sort of drives the lives of people in the community. I was drawn into that immediately, and I was also drawn into how, you know, it, it's it's obviously, you know, for someone, you know, watching the series, it's difficult to watch because, you know, the, the people who are the victims talk about this as if it happened yesterday. But you also recognize that uh, they, 
part of the reason why it stayed with them so much is that the church formed sort of their their personalities and their identities as kids. Um, so so seeing this you know true crime, this real life show told by the people who unfortunately lived through it um, is what really made me kind of you know focus and and kind of watch through to the end to see sort of what happened. Obviously, America magazine covered covered this series with your article. Um, but what have some of the other Catholic reactions been like? Are, are, are people defensive or embracing the show, do you think? Well, I, the, the series got a lot of coverage, um, you know, from Catholic and secular media. I think the Catholic coverage sort of overall has been pretty even-keeled and, and open-minded. You know, the case itself with Father Maskell and the archdiocese was not something that was necessarily introduced by the series itself. So it wasn't as if it was like the revelation from the series that there were these scandals and and lawsuits and so on. But I think what happens is that I think some Catholics were were maybe nervous. A lot of times I think certain Catholics have an anxiety about how Catholicism is portrayed in, in mainstream sort of, you know, Netflix, Hollywood, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, do you th- do you think it was a fair depiction? I thought it was. I thought it was very fair. Um, I thought you know the, the, the archdiocese. I don't believe answered requests for interviews, which is not surprising. Um, I didn't. Didn't you know? I've seen. I mean, I think anti-Catholic or sort of slanted against Catholic representations are pretty legion out there, and, and I've seen a lot of those. Um, this didn't strike me as that at all. It didn't. It, it was a very you know when you when you start the series, the first episode or two, um, really stresses how this school, Archbishop Keogh, which was run by the School Sisters of Notre Dame, um, it was a very kind of upbeat, optimistic portrayal of the Church as an open-minded, welcoming, inclusive place. Um, and I, don't, I think for that reason, Catholics have been willing to listen to it in a very particular way. Yeah, I, I, there was, in the first episode at least, before um, some of the darker aspects of the story were revealed, I, I, I there was like the scene where it showed like nuns and priests uh, marching with Martin Luther King and all these pictures, scenes with the Catholic school kids and I felt like a certain like nostalgia, like, oh, look how like vibrant that Catholic community right, was. But right. that existed alongside this this terrible, terrible abuse that was going on. Right. So like, It was kind of jarring as a viewer, too. Like, I went in expecting that it was going to be very much a sort of detective series about this murder. Then by episode two or three, I was kind of like, oh, my God, this is an unbelievably difficult series to get through. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your personal viewing experience? It was, I mean, I think for most people it's hard to watch. But what what did you personally take away? Uh, I mean, it's exhausting to watch as a series um, because, as you say, you know, it's... uh, you know, one of the victims was known as Jane Doe for many years, um, and only kind of revealed her identity last, you know, I think, four or five years ago. And she's one of the main characters of narrative. And you know, these for these young women, the church was really a formative element of their existence. Um, you know, to to be assaulted and victimized by someone that you see as a representative or channeling God. Um, to be a believer in that, and then to have that happen to you, and to have that hang over you for the rest of your life, is um, 
incomprehensible to someone for whom it hasn't happened. And it's, you know, we, uh, on the outside looking at it, the, the show does a very good job of bringing you in and helping you understand what these women had to live with and have to live with still. Uh, I mean, my, my daughters uh, will, I mean, they're only four, but they're starting at Catholic preschool um, in the fall. And, uh, you know, when you go to the school and, and bring them in the morning, you see one or two nuns and priests. If this was 40 years ago, you might see maybe one or two lay people. You know, we all know sort of the Catholic schools struggle right now. But what the show captures is how this was really a, a clergy-based education. And they saw Sister Kathy, the students saw her, as sort of this light, you know, a very strict school, as one would imagine, you know, a parochial school in 1965 or to 69 would be. But it was seen as a place where people could grow and, and, and sort of, you know, Sister Kathy was seen as a guiding light in that sense. Um, I think what's happened, you know, in, in Catholic culture is there's there's a certain, I don't know if it's cynicism or whatever you want to call it, but I don't know if there's that same level of optimism post-Vatican II. Now, uh, I think, I, I don't know that it means that people are any less religious, but to the sense of culture and community, you know, like I said, this is Baltimore, which is a very Catholic place. Um, and, you know, I think it's a place where Catholicism really uh, structure their lives. And, you know, that is something I don't necessarily see, you know, I'm only speaking through my experience. Um, I live in, I mean, New Jersey is super Catholic too, but um, I don't know if it's structuring our lives as communities in the same way. So it, it it's a kind of show that I think is very necessary for Catholics to watch. I think, you know, with the abuse scandal, I think obviously a lot of secular representations of it have, um, just like in other ways that they represent the Church, done it in a potentially inaccurate way. Um, and, you know, I think someone like me who was born well after Vatican II you know, happened, and then only knows about it as a writer, you know, as a researcher, it helps people understand that really tenuous moment where the, we're very optimistic about the Church, and at the same time, this is when the abuse scandal seemed to, to peak in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I grew up in Ohio, and the Church was sort of there, but I went to public school, I didn't go to the, um, so it was just sort of on the margins of my life even, so it was interesting, I mean, as Ashley's pointing out, to see everyone sort of marching around and to see nuns. And I don't think I saw my first nun until I was out of high school. So that was kind of, that's that definitely left an impression on me. You mentioned your daughters and that it just prompted in my own mind, like how how people like your daughters and, and frankly me, um, learn about the sex abuse crisis. Because like when Spotlight, the Boston Globe's uh, investigation into sexual abuse in Boston broke, that was like the early 2000s. And, you know, I was like 10 or 11. So I it really wasn't on my radar. So mm -hmm. the way that I do learn about this scandal is through things like Spotlight the movie and shows like this. Do you think that's a helpful way to learn about it like how would yeah what yeah you... i find myself like feeling angry for the first time about it yeah when i watch shows like when i when i was watching the keepers i, I you know 
I never had like the whole experience of being angry and, you know, mad at the hierarchy and mm-hmm. the initial being mad. So yeah, and and we're and it's like now who do we who do we hold accountable because it most of the so, people yeah. who yeah. committed these abuses are dead. I feel similar to Zach. Like I felt really angry and like you were mentioning, this is really the first time where we are introduced to like the sexual abuse scandal so explicitly. And then I found myself questioning, like I've gone to Catholic schools my entire life. Nuns were a part of my high school experience. I went to a Jesuit university, so I knew priests. So to see this, it really made me go back and think like, wow, to know that someone could have abused teenagers in that way is just super shocking, yeah. you know? So it really made me angry and made me kind of reevaluate my own Catholic education and look at it in a different lens, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, the well, part of the debate has been, is this something that comes from some element of Catholic culture? Like, is it something about the, the, the priesthood or something about the hierarchy? Is it specific to Catholic? I mean, the, the, you know, there hasn't really been any data, at least that I've come across, that says that in the faith tradition of Catholic, Roman Catholicism that it's more the higher number of clergy doing this. Um, I mean, I still think 4% is way too high itself. I mean, this is something that is abominable and frightening that has happened. And I think, you know, trying to, to be angry, like when you watch the Keepers, like, like you say, you know, I feel like Catholics should be mad that this happened and that it's continued to be something that has caused pain to people. Um, and then taking that emotion and trying to understand what allowed it to happen. And do those things still exist? Um, do those cover-ups or tendencies toward it still exist? And if they do, what do we do to change it? I mean, the keeper ha- has to portray the negative elements of the case because they are, they are accurate. But I don't think that the show makes the argument that this is somehow endemic to Catholicism. I think it makes the argument that there are certain elements of the Catholic religion as an institution that allowed a cover-up to continue. And I think, you know, that's an important thing for people to see uh, from this, is that there is the act and the crime and then the cover-up, and the sort of different steps along the way. So... Nick, you mentioned that we should be angered and we should be questioning and looking into these issues. Do you think that the series helps to advance justice? This is a, a case that is still open. You know, this is something, I mean, all the attention, I believe, you know, Father um, Maskell's body was exhumed when the show was announced and they did DNA testing and they didn't sort of connect him directly to the murder. And I don't think, you know, the, the series necessarily makes the argument that he you know, did something direct. Um, I'm the kind of person who believes, like Young Pope and, you know, the Keepers, these, when we put Catholicism under the light of secular media or secular presentation, I think it's a positive thing. It gets people talking, and we can clear up some myths and misunderstandings. There's always going to be people who, you know, like, comment without reading the article, kind of people who will say, okay, well, here's another example of the Catholic, you know, abuse and, you know, people pro-church and sort of anti-church. If someone stays with the series, they see the nuance of the case, 
while being angry and, and mad at, at the fact that this happened and that it continues to be an issue. You say it's Catholic uh, abuse is 4%, which is not more than other institutions. Um, why do you think the secular media and secular audience cares care so much about it in this instance? And do you think it's... Is that is that a good thing? Does it just hold us accountable more than other groups, or um, yeah? How would you react to that? I, th- I mean, I think I think I think the secular media and Hollywood and those groups are have always been fascinated by Catholicism because it's different, and it's I mean it's an immigrant religion. It's something that people who who come to this country you know, like my family, not speaking English, um, practiced. It's different. It's mysterious. And it's something that is secretive. You know, I mean, if you look at, you know, films that have portrayed Catholicism, oftentimes in exaggerated ways, they portray that sort of labyrinthine, different way to it. Um, I mean, you even go back to the idea of Latin mass, the idea of chanting so the, the, the church abuse is, is another thing that happens that was covered up or sort of, you know, it was hidden. And, you know, for someone who has a negative opinion of the church, this is yet another example of things that the church does that is holier than now or that they wish to contain power. Um, so it's sort of a ready-made scandal. And I think, you know, like I said before, the difficult thing, or I think the important thing, is to at, at the same time say this is an incredible problem that has happened, and it's horrifying. And then to try to figure out, you know, for Catholics, how to address it and get people help and fix this. And then from a secular point of view, how to not use this in the long tradition of sort of anti-Catholic strongmen as this, you know, to, to say it's something that it's not, you know, and I think what the Keepers does is it re- reminds us how horrific, you know, sexual abuse is 40 years later for people, you know. I mean, we all can imagine that it's a horrific thing at, at the moment, but to see someone who's a grown person, like a senior citizen, who's talking about this abuse as if it happened yesterday it reminds us how it stays with people, but it doesn't then make these kind of glaring logical leaps about the church or about you know, practicing Catholics as if you know, there's a connection between those two things. You know, it portrays the people who did this as they were, as criminals, you know, as aberrations sort of from this. There's no way to downplay how horrific this was, um, but we're a generally hopeful people as Catholics. Is there anything in this series that gives you hope or just, or brings to the surface, that hope? I would say it's the fact that those two women who were Sister Kathy's former students who were leading the investigation, that they capture the spirit of that all-girls school. They, you know, their, their phrase was, you know, sort of their motto for their school song was women of a new age, that they were sort of preparing women to be leaders. Um, and, you know, to have these two women now who were so moved by this teacher. You know, a lot of people say that they have a great teacher along the way, but these are people who their lives were changed by this woman. Um, 
and they only had it for like two or three years, and that all these years later, that they sort of hold out this hope, this faith, that they can help solve this case. It is powerful. Something I appreciated was how earnest their faith and the faith of the community was depicted in the series. Obviously, you know, priests and the abusers at the time are, you know, were thought of as God and the church, but also, you know, like Sister Kathy was the church. These these women were the church. And so to be able to see them depicted in such a way was, it makes it harder for me to buy into any like anti-Catholic bias in the in the filmmakers. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I remember when we posted this, your review of it, we got a ton of positive reactions, not only to your writing, but just to the fact that this was covered in, you know, a Catholic review meant a lot to our readers, I know. Why do you why do you think that is? The people I think the people, you know, especially people from the Vatican II generation from the sixties and the early seventies, Catholicism was, was an essential part of their their soul, their being. When they were hurt in this way, to have the church turn its back on them was um, that's something that, you know, people who are baptized Catholic, it's with them forever. And to have a church that doesn't address it and comfort them, not only drives them away, but um, it's sort of like the, the compounding of the wound, you know. So I think the positive reaction might come from the fact that we're willing to confront this terrible time and this terrible event, talk about it, try to understand how to move, you know, sort of in a positive direction from it and learn from the sort of reaction to it and then and the response to it by the church and by the people of this community. Um, I mean, unfortunately, the people who tend to have this abuse oftentimes are very strong believers. You know, it's, it's the thing that allowed people like, you know, Joseph Maskell to, to prey on people, is their their willingness to believe and their holding the priest sort of up um, as important. So I think to finally have people affiliated with the church or a publication affiliated with the church talk about this openly uh, probably was sort of a relief for them that they've been holding it for so long. Nick, thank you so much for this. It's not easy to talk about these things, but thank you for joining us and talking about your article, which our listeners can read at americamagazine.org. And thank you for recommending Limoncello. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Indeed, soul cleansing. <laughs> <laughs> so one one final question before we let you go. If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be? Andy Warhol. Oh, okay. say more. He's, 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 he was Catholic. Um, a lot of people, I mean, I don't know if it's the secret that he was Catholic, but um, but he uh, he was very, very Catholic. Uh, went to daily Mass, um, served food at a homeless shelter, um, surrounded himself with Catholics, like his inner circle was a little Catholic. He was like ultra-Catholic. And of course his art um, is, is incredibly Catholic in its representation, sort of the Christ-like portraitures, and um, his last show was The Last Supper, so I want to see Andy back. That's awesome. I, I had yeah. no idea. <laughs> We've got a new ideas, idea for our culture section. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, all right, Nick, thank you so much for joining us, and where can people find your work? I have, uh, I mean, I have my website, um, nickrepatchstone.com, where people can find a lot of the essays, and I write regularly for um, America, of course, Rolling Stone, the Atlantic, and Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you. 
All right, time for some listener mail. What do we have, Olga? This week, we've got an email from Tom Rankin, who writes, Special thanks for your episode on millennial dating slash relationships. I'm a recently single guy, and I'm starting to venture back into the dating pool. The online dating apps are as brutal as ever, so Carrie Cronin's analysis was both refreshing and insightful. So, one, thank you for listening. Two, so glad that we could help you as you venture into dating. That's awesome. One of my little brother's friends texted me today. Uh... He's he's like, I don't know, 23, I guess. Uh, and he's he's Jewish. And he was listening to this episode. He's like, oh, my gosh, Ashley, it's so great. And then he got I guess he got to the point where we got to dating apps. And he's like, oh, you should get on J swipe. <laughs> like, Am I allowed? <laughs> um, and other feedback news. We asked last week for people to give us iTunes reviews because that is the best way to get our rating up on iTunes. And two of you responded. So special thanks to RP Cub and L Jello and Ignatius HS. Maybe you should <laughs> maybe you should read Ignatius HS. Oh, should I? Okay. Great podcast, funny hosts, quality guests each week. Zach with an H is no, my favorite. He just doesn't know that my name is with a C. I forgive you, Ignatius HS. I'm assuming you're talking about me. Yeah. No, but I mean, all five-star reviews, so. Thank you, guys. That's pretty sweet. In other news, we are also going to be tweeting out a survey to our listeners uh, in the coming days. So if you like this podcast, if you would like it, if we would only stop doing that one freaking thing yeah, that annoys the hell out of you. there are parts that you like, press the like 15 seconds fast-forward button for, let us know. Um, yeah. If you think we should divulge more about our (laughs) (laughs) yeah if we should share more be more more than we already do or if you have like it's also going to be really useful you know as we figure out who we want to invite on the show and what topics do we want to cover uh that's going to be essential we want to you know be of service to you uh so help us out fill out that survey because we're 20 episodes in it's kind of crazy yep i agree (laughs) haven't haven't been canceled yet thank god (laughs) Okay, time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was a little bit harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So, um, today, I actually, this started off as a desolation and I think slowly became a consolation, so I'm going to need you guys to kind of help me and talk me out on this one. So, as many of our listeners know, and the host and all of my all of the people in this room right now know my spiritual journey the past few months has been very intertwined with my relationship with my boyfriend Enoch so we've been doing a lot of things together we've gotten into like these routines where we go to service we like got a google doc for your bible exactly like we're we're really we're really doing it we're meeting all these goals but he's away this week and it was like the first time that I had to be actively doing all of these things on my own so Monday I woke up and I was just like I don't want to pray (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to read the Bible. <laughs> I don't want to talk to God. I don't want to do anything. I'm so sad. I'm, I feel lonely. Like I miss this person and like I'm missing our routine. So I was in a funk for like the first two days of this week. Then, you know, because we need consolations and desolations, I was like, okay, let me get out of my funk. Let me actually like do some introspection. Then I realized, you know, it was just kind of a great opportunity for me to kind of jump into my relationship with God on my own and just kind of really challenge myself to get out of that funk. So, yeah. So, Ashley, what do you got? I've got a desolation this week. Um, So, (laughs) yesterday, also while I was (laughs) trying to think about 
what I was going to talk about today. I was standing in front of my refrigerator, as I often do, contemplating life. And there was a picture of um, me and my three roommates from a little over a year ago from when we went to the pop-up party that I discussed with Zach. I was cut out of that photo. <laughs> I was there. So it was, it was the four of us, the original roommates. We uh, moved in together in the fall of 2013 and really created a really great community, which has slowly been reaching its expiration date. Uh, one of the One of my roommates moved out in March. One of them is gone for the summer doing an internship. So we have two new roommates. The other one of the originals has been traveling a lot. So I really don't have the same community that I really just like stumbled into accidentally almost four years ago. Um, so I really like have been confronting the end of that community because come November, we've already decided to go our separate ways. Um, so that's anxiety producing because it really I, it was kind of random that I fell into this community and I don't know how I'm going to recreate it come November. Yeah, losing community is hard. But at the same time, seeing that picture did remind me of how grateful I am and should be for the past four years. So. Mm. That's, that's a good place to be, but a difficult place to get to is gratitude. Yeah. What about you, Zach? Uh, this week, I've got a consolation perhaps due to someone else's desolation. But uh, I was having a conversation with a really good friend of mine and they're going through some some challenges and some tough times and some transitions. And they, you know, kind of broke down a little bit and apologized to me. Uh, you know, I'm sorry I'm not at my best self right now. And that for me was a moment of that was a moment of consolation because I think that requires a lot of honesty and vulnerability to be with someone at not your best self. And I think that's how God loves us. You know, whatever our self is, whether it's our best or not is enough. That is the best self if we're there. Um, and so being able to feel that and recognize God's love in that, in that relationship of quote unquote, not the not best self um, was my consolation this week. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, it's based off someone else's desolation, I think, but. <laughs> no, but like the idea, the yeah, the, the insight that whenever we're before God in prayer, it's our not best self. I mean, I, gen or maybe not for you guys, but I generally feel like it's not my best self. <laughs> God wants all yourselves. <laughs> Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Adult Supervision, provided by Carrie Weber. Research, provided by Jack McCordick, Anna Marchese, and Emma Winters. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitful Show. And if you want to hear your name read on air, leave us a review on iTunes. And subscribe. Feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.